to the Parenting Puzzle, piecing together the best care for our kids, like me. Hi everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting Puzzle. My name is Grace Kodama and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist who's been working with kids and families for over 10 years. We have been making our way through our Managing Meltdown series and finally gotten to part four, yay, which is our frequently asked questions and some tips and hints to wrap up this series. So I'm going to start with our frequently asked questions and I will pose the top three that I get asked. Number one is this. I do this exact mellow process that you've described, but my kid is still doing blank. He's not moving, complying, or getting over it, and we're spending hours dealing with this. Where is my magic tool for helping him or her move on, and what am I missing? And my answer is this. Oftentimes, we might think we are doing this process, but we may or may not be fully doing it, fully seeing our child's perspective, fully helping them let go, or we're falling into the trap of their emotions or the trap of getting dysregulated ourselves but not recognizing our own dysregulation, or we're trying to fix it for them rather than allowing them to flex their own problem-solving skills and and walk their way through it. I'm going to answer this question in more detail at the end when I talk about parent expectations, but I just want to say now that as we dive further into today's talk, I want to encourage you to be a little bit more reflective than in past episodes and just about your own history and experience and how that impacts and influences what you do as a parent and what you do or want for your child, okay? Hopefully, you're in a good place in your brain today and can handle a little bit of challenge and reflection. Now, on to the second question I get asked, which is, I would have never dared to behave like this with my parents, so why does my kid think that they can? First, I'm going to readjust our rose-colored glasses a little bit. You know, maybe we didn't dare to act out out of fear of getting our butts whooped, but we definitely weren't all model children all the time who didn't question our parents in our own minds. Because if we didn't question how we were parented, why aren't we parenting the exact same way our parents did, right? Let's also recognize that fear is a good motivator, but fear doesn't build relationships. And I'm talking about fear here and not respect. So respect is about a feeling of admiration for another person. Fear is about inhibiting myself due to a desire to avoid retaliation or punishment or pain or whatnot. We all probably feared the punishment. So when Jenga happened, we complied because we were protecting ourselves. But fear is not the same thing as respect, and let's just make sure to separate that, okay? Which leaves the bigger question, how can you feel respected by your child without resorting to fear, especially during a meltdown? And the answer is consistency. Consistency is key. Kids are all about testing limits. They need to to test things, to learn skills, to gain mastery, so it's really developmentally appropriate for them. And they're seeing when they're testing limits if you'll be there to keep them safe. So if you've bent and you've given in here or there, they'll keep testing because they've gotten through before. So inconsistency builds the desire to push harder. So be consistent. The second answer is relationship. Their ability to fall apart in front of you speaks to a sense of safety. You know, we don't let our guard down when we don't feel safe with someone. So your child falling apart with you could be a sign that they trust that you will still be there to pick them up and not abandon them. 
have faith in your relationship with your child, focus on building that trust and respect and engage in positive experiences. Like Dr. Perry said, your relationship can then buffer against the hard times, the difficult times, okay? The final frequently asked question I'll discuss today is this. I don't have time for this. I have things to do. I have other kids that are important too. My income, my job, whatever it is requires my energy and I just can't do all of these steps. So what else can I do? I wish that I had an easier answer to this, but the answer is that taking the time now will pay off later. Don't get me wrong. I know this takes time, but as you and your child get through this routine, it will sink in and build that skill of emotional regulation that will help shrink the time that you spend managing meltdowns. And I want to highlight that biologically, we're not meant to parent alone. So I recognize that we're all doing our best as parents, and let's be willing to get support, to ask for help, to help each other out. You know, remember, again, it's relationship that buffers us against hardship and makes life bearable. So we as parents aren't exempt from that. In order to have the time and energy to ensure that our child's brain gets well-wired, we need support for ourselves. So those are our three frequently asked questions. I'm going to move on to discussing the four parts of our tips and hints section, beginning with de-escalation tactics or ways to respond when kids are in the M for mellow and that will move them towards the O of opening up. So much of de-escalation involves recognizing your stance and how challenging or threatening it may seem to the child. So get small, get to eye level, Try standing off to the side or side by side rather than face to face. Don't loom. Looming can be activating. It can feel threatening. Don't demand eye contact in that moment as it can be also viewed as threatening. And don't challenge the volume. That's our own dysregulation rearing up when we get loud when they're getting loud. So quiet down. Demonstrate intensity in your voice without challenging the volume. And when your kid goes high, you go low. If they shout, go to a whisper that will kind of break the cycle. And instead of responding with dysregulation, with more dysregulation, we're now learning to ease up and demonstrate some control in that situation. When you're trying to deescalate, also stay away from shoulds or rules that involve logic and seem boxing in, which will most likely be met with more defensiveness when a child is in Jenga. So try placing the blame for whatever limit or rule you're setting on an it rather than me, the parent, telling you, the child, what to do. Maybe it's about the schedule or about the time, but not because I told you so. And when you're talking, use joining words, we, rather than you versus me, so that they feel like we're in this together. And give reassurance about safety and help rather than threat or hurt. You know, I've told you how I do this with my kids. I say, mommy's here to help you and not hurt you. Okay, so those are de-escalation tactics. The second part of our tips is respecting history, recognizing the history of your child and any possible trauma or relationship history that has led to this point. Let's respect the brain and its past practice and recognize that when you now try to decide to do something different, it will take time to change. I'm going to throw in some brain science here and discuss why kids may seem to jump to reacting instantaneously or going from zero to 100 without warning. And it's because our brain develops these shortcuts from patterns that occur. And this is to help us, but it can go awry. So 
If I had to relearn how to drive a car every time I got inside one, it would be really exhausting and time consuming, right? So my brain has the shortcut to this skill and I access it when I need to, when the situation arises. The same principle applies to meltdowns. When a kid gets triggered, they probably have shortcuts to their reaction and meltdown because it's been such a pattern for them already. So in order to change their reaction, we need to reinforce a new pattern and plan of action over and over and over for at least as long as the old one has been in place. I've heard the saying, um, I don't know where I heard it from, but don't expect to walk 10 miles into a forest and get out in five miles which makes a lot of sense, right? Now apply that to your child's brain. Don't expect one therapy session to undo years of difficulty. Don't expect handling one tantrum differently to change how how long it takes for those tantrums right away. It takes work and consistency, but it can be done. I promise you it can be done. It's here that garbage can moments come into play too. Remember my teaser? So I give all my patients this analogy that we are like garbage cans with our emotions. Every time we experience a difficult emotion and we don't do anything with it, we fill our garbage can. And two things happen when we keep filling our trash. One is that eventually it will overflow and it doesn't overflow from the thing way at the bottom. It overflows from that last napkin or cup that you put on top that causes the cascade to happen. Two is that when we leave trash and we don't deal with it, it rots. So the tiny little irritation that you felt before has now festered into a bitterness or rage that now feels awful. And recognizing from the first part that getting mad at that moment may be a garbage can moment. It may be overflow from before. And it might be the start of unleashing a garbage can full of emotions that haven't been dealt with before. So if your child seems more emotional and having more meltdowns when you start this process, this could be why. They could be experiencing a garbage can moment. And we want to allow these to happen so that we can fully empty our trash and not have our kids hold on to all this stuff. The third part of our tips and hints is to respect the difference between chronological, developmental, and functional age. These are all different and don't necessarily always match up. So chronological age is pretty easy. It's literally how old you are, right, from your birthday. Developmental age is where this child is at with acquiring the skills that they should have for that age. For example, we don't expect a four-year-old to do algebra. Developmentally, their brain hasn't gotten there yet to be able to process concepts like that. But a four-year-old does know their name. They can tell you basic emotions like being mad or happy. So that's developmental age. Now, functional age is what age we are functioning at in any given moment. When we are in Jenga, we are all like two-year-olds because our higher parts of our brain are not accessible to us. So our functional age is two. We literally got stupider. So the tip is this. Acknowledge the age your child is presenting with, their functional age, not what age they should be acting. And you'll be much more effective as a parent if you address their functional age than if you get stuck focusing on how you think they should or shouldn't be acting at that moment, okay? Finally, the last tip is to practice what you preach, and this is common sense. If you explode, so will your child. If you get caught up in the minutiae of their words and details, 
so will they. If you want them to be calm, you've got to be calm first, right? The E and ease up. We've got to be calm and model being calm for them to learn and to manage being calm. And so many times I get told by kids whose parents complain of them being overreactive and irritable and argumentative that the kids are telling me a history of witnessing constant arguing, bickering, um, etc. And so think back to our well-wired brain and how even exposing our child to a constant environment of chaos or unpredictability or arguing or violence can lead to this brain being wired differently and more vulnerable. I want that as motivation to practice what you preach. If we want our child to develop a well-wired brain, we've got to model that first. We've got to do our best to do the things that we want them to do so that they grow up with the capability to do so. Now that we have a few minutes left, I'd like to wrap up this talk on a personal note about parent expectations. When we enter into parenting, whether it's planned or not, we all bring expectations about how we will be as parents and how our child would be. Our hopes, our dreams, our fears drive how we react or behave without us even knowing it. And these are based in our own stuff, our own history or childhood experiences. Selma Freiberg, uh, a well-known psychoanalyst and researcher on infants, named this concept ghosts in the nursery. Sometimes our expectations or ghosts in the nursery block us from seeing the needs of our child in front of us because we're hoping they'll be like this or we we fear they become like so-and-so or we won't be the parent that allows such and such to happen. To me, our expectations are generally rooted in our own desire to be the best parent that we can be because we care so deeply about our children. But in that desire, does this lead to feelings of guilt if we don't pay attention to everything that we're doing? And if we don't pay attention to everything, what does that say about me as a parent and how much I care about my kid? I saw this article about mom shaming recently where a picture of a mom at an airport on her phone while her baby was laying on a blanket in front of her went viral with some guy saying, look at this generation of idiots raising children. And she got so many hateful comments that she had to go on the Today Show to defend herself and say, I was going on 20 hours of delays at the airport and my baby was stuck in this carrier for hours. You know, this was my first chance to give her some time to relax and for me to text our family to say that we're okay. But look how she got judged for this one moment in time. It literally led to the question, is looking away for our kids for one second okay? What will others think of us? And instead of assuming the best about this mom, we were so quick to jump to the worst. Instead of building her up, we immediately tore her down. And what a difficult time in society it is when we as parents are always on the defensive every time we step outside because we have to be, because we're so quick to judge. Basically, we're forced into Jenga on a regular basis when it comes to others questioning our parenting. You know, this podcast has been an experiment for me as a mom and as a therapist myself. How do I feel about putting my own parenting experiences and my therapist knowledge out there for others to hear and to judge? How will I measure up? So my hope to you is this, that we all do our best we be consistent in what we do 
uh, that we don't expect that we can do this alone because we're not meant to parent alone, that we get support. As a therapist, I'm here to help, but you know your child best. So find supportive people who will honor that and honor you. Know that we're all rooting for you. Let's try to assume the best about each other. Let's try to lift each other up and be there for each other and cheer each other on into working together to ensure a society of healthy, successful, and thriving children. Well, I could probably talk about this topic forever and dive into every story about tantrums that I've heard over the years, but we're going to move on because we have to move on sometime. So let's just say that we're going to close this chapter for now, but we'll keep coming back to this puzzle that we're building as much as we need to. Thank you for listening in to our Managing Meltdown series. We'll be back with more talks very soon. Thanks for listening. We love questions. Email us at parentingpuzzlepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much.